Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. Uh, normally, at this point, we'd go right into Steve's teaching, but uh, today we've got a unique opportunity that's very timely, so I just wanted to start with that. I am joined by Steve. I call him Dad. Howdy. Um, and I got a phone call today from our partner and dear friend, Randeep, in India. Uh, regular listeners of this podcast would certainly know Randeep and um, have seen him on the podcast before. Uh, he called today to talk to me about the riots that have been happening the last three days in Delhi. Um, Dad, do you want to just kind of catch people up on what's happening? There? Yeah, they broke out on Sunday night, and uh, it is uh, rioting uh, at one level between the Hindus and the Muslims, but really what it is, the majority Hindu population is attacking Muslim uh, mosques, shops, and even homes. Uh, there, there's burnings, there's beatings, there's been as of this morning, 23 killed, yeah. and uh, it's in it's it's a bad situation. It is. Uh, so Randeep called me to say, hey, can you guys help? We want to go and bring some immediate relief to some of these families that have been just so horrifically damaged by this. Uh, and of course, we said, absolutely. What do you need? Uh, they want to go down and do some feeding. Um, some people may recall we actually did uh, some ministry to the Rohingya refugees who had fled this very same type of violence in Myanmar a couple of years ago, uh, who are now living in, in communities uh, in India, in Delhi, uh, and they're one of the main subjects of these attacks. So uh, Randeep would like to go and bring food and uh, blankets and stuff to these people who just, they've been devastated. They've got nothing left. Uh, so we wanted to ask you if you would join us, uh, if you head to impactnations.com slash India. Uh, right now, though, we, we're literally going to be sending him in the next 48 hours or so. They're going to be driving down to Delhi. So uh, we, we really would love for you to join us in that endeavor. We've already raised a couple thousand dollars uh, so far this morning, just since we sent out an email about it. Uh, so please come join us uh, at impactnations.com slash India. This is... Uh uh, not only an opportunity, I, I think it's really, uh, as it were, almost like an injunction from the Lord that uh, that we are to take care right now of those who are in a desperate need, and um, and let the love of Christ touch everyone. Yeah. Certainly his love is not just for those who follow him, but no. they're, they're for his whole creation. And his word says it's his kindness that will lead to repentance. So yeah. let's just show the kindness and love of Christ. Um, anyway, impactnations.com slash India. Please consider joining us in that endeavor. Uh, and now we're going to flow right into the teaching of the week, looking at the transfiguration. The glory of Christ. Um, I'm going to just start with a, a wonderful uh, quote. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our journey into the mystery of Christ and his unsearchable riches has begun to bring us to a much more multidimensional understanding of who this King of Glory really is. We've touched on how Jesus eternally lives uh, beyond time and space. Uh, we spent a week looking at how he uh, repeatedly appears throughout the Old Testament. And I would go even beyond that and say he's really the key for understanding the Old Testament. We're going to touch on that a little later. 
We looked uh, last week at the incarnation, where God became man and will be forever in the joyful, self-giving, other-celebrating, infinite creativity. How's that for a long phrase? Of of the activity of the Trinity. Um, That, to pare that down, there is a man in the Trinity, Jesus Christ. But tonight, we're going to look at the transfiguration. I'm going to start with a quote from a writer, J.T. Walt. He said this, We are glimpsing the timelessness of eternity breaking in on the present time. On that mountain, we are seeing through the veil that separates heaven and earth and glimpsing the kingdom of God in all its glorious, indescribable essence, bright shining as the sun, as the hymn has said it. Isn't that a great quote? I wish I'd said that. At the Transfiguration, uh, we behold the life for which we were created, uh, eternal and glorious. I'm going to step back from my notes for a moment. I don't want us to just see an event. I want us to see how this is a window that opens up. Uh, this theme that we looked at last year in John so much, where Jesus said, lift up your eyes and see. Recognizing the the ultimate reality of the kingdom of heaven all around us. It's like a window into that. And that's what I hope we get tonight. Uh, I'm going to look at all kinds of different symbols and things. But at the heart of it, I want us to read this passage differently from now on. That it really opens the way to, as as Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you don't understand earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? Remember in John 3 he said that? So my hope is this is a key for us to begin to understand more in a heavenly way. <coughs> Pardon me. So the transfiguration points us toward who Jesus really is, the nature of the reality of who he will be forever, and how we will live with him forever. So I'm going to read... And I don't think I've ever done this before. I'm reading from Matthew's account of the Transfiguration, which is Matthew 17, 1 to 8. But, but I'm interjecting two, uh, two verses from Luke's account. I'll tell you as I read them. Because, um, there's just richness and we need both to understand all of what's going on. So here we go. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And then here's Luke's account. He took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Back to Matthew. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now we'll interject what Luke's account is. And they appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And now we'll go back to Matthew, where we'll stay. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, 
This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. I'm going to leave my text for a moment. One of the things that sticks out to me at the end of Matthew's account, I see the tenderness of Christ. These guys are on the ground, they're terrified, which seems to be the common pattern when people have this encounter. And it says, and he lifted them up. And what I thought about was, um, I was reading a book on on uh, resurrection art. Um, you know, it was that or the latest John Grisham. Anyway, um, on resurrection art, and it was really interesting because in the Western tradition, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, he's always the victorious one. Sometimes he's actually, his hands are up like this. But in the Eastern tradition, he is never like this. He is always reaching down and lifting up, often Adam and Eve, but lifting up humanity. Isn't that interesting? And that just went, came right back to me, so I thought I'd just leave my lesson and give you that. That was a freebie. Okay, let's look at the context of what's going on here. Um, and again, I'm going to refer mainly to Matthew. Unless I say otherwise, I'm in Matthew's account. Uh, uh, chapter 16 ends with Jesus telling the disciples that he and they were about to go up to Jerusalem where he would suffer and be killed. Uh, in this context, he tells them that they must be willing to lose their lives. 16.25, famous phrase, the most often said saying of Jesus, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, whoever loses it for my sake will find it. But that's the context of where he said it. He said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be uh, persecuted, I'm going to be killed. So now, coming right from there, there's no break in Matthew's account, because remember the chapters were added about 400 AD by Jerome, so there were, it's just continuous. I want to tell you that uh, parenthetically, sometimes it's good to keep reading when you get to the end of the chapter, and just see that the theme, how the theme links. So, he takes them with him up the mountain in order to plant in them a certainty about him and about the glory and the light of God that await them too. Jesus knew that with what they were going into in Jerusalem, they would need this in the midst of what was about to happen. Um, he was strengthening them, strengthening them with, with supernatural heavenly encounter. We need encounter. He knew they needed encounter because of what they were headed to. Now he finishes chapter 16 in verse 28. He says this, I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Any way you cut it, this is a difficult saying. I've read church fathers, I've read evangelical uh, commentators, I've read mainline commentators, I've read Catholic commentators. This is a difficult passage. Basically, when they're saying, he said, there's some of you who are not going to die before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Here's the predominant interpretations. Number one is the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Some of you... Personally, I don't think it's that. Because I don't think that the fall of Jerusalem really brought in the coming of the kingdom. In fact, I'm convinced it didn't. Others say he was referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Most of the church fathers, and I tend to, I think I agree with them, uh, although I recognize this is difficult and, you know, one day we'll all find out, but most of the church fathers believed that when Jesus said that, he was referring to the transfiguration. Some of you are going to see the kingdom of heaven come in a very powerful manifestation um, that's going to reveal the eternal, glorious reality of the kingdom. To see Jesus in his glory, which is what they did, um, is to see a preview of that day when he will return to reign. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, Peter, years later, recalling his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, wrote this in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says the same thing. They never forgot what happened that day. How could they? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. One of the main reasons why I decided not to go right to the cross, which had been my original intention, was that I think this is the key moment between the Incarnation and the Passion, the death and crucifixion of Christ, and that this is about the glory of Christ. And since the purpose of this series is to increase our revelation and our understanding of who is this King of Glory, then I wanted I wanted to take some time tonight. And I thought I would be teaching for a short time on this, and the more I've got into it, and I've been into this for a few days, really studying this, it's growing and growing. Um, glory is a major theme in the New Testament. So tonight we're looking at the transfiguration, but it's really about the glory of Christ being revealed. You know, glory is a, is a theme all through the Gospels, especially, by the way, in Luke and John. Luke uses the word glory ten times, John twenty-three times. Um, in the prologue, uh, John one fourteen, which we've looked at many times, he says, we have seen his glory. He's talking about the same event that Peter just referenced. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And this phrase immediately follows the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory is, is a central, central theme. One of my favorite verses for years has been what Jesus said, remember when Lazarus died and his sisters were in mourning, and he says in 1140, he says, if, believe me, if you will just believe, you will see 
the glory. You will see my glory. You will see the glory of God. The transfiguration ties in directly with what I talked about last week. Uh, the incarnation, which is about the glory of God coming to earth as a man. Fully man, fully God. If anybody cares, the Greek word for glory is doxa, where we get doxology. D-O-X-A. It appears 144 times in the New Testament. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind because we're going to get there again near the end. Doxa, glory, has got two main usages in the New Testament. The first refers to a specific physical phenomenon. Um, and I'm going to give you an Old and New Testament example. Uh, Exodus 24:16, the glory of the Lord, by the word in the Old Testament, if anybody cares, is kabod, K-A-B-O-D, glory. And it means the weightiness. Um, so it's parallel to the Greek, which is doxa. Anyway, Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. The angels come and announce to the shepherds in Luke 2, right? The glory, the doxa of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So it refers, first of all, uh, to a specific physical phenomenon. Secondly, glory refers to praise that is rendered or given to God. And we see this a lot in the hymns of Revelation. We're going to look at that much later tonight after this podcast is over. But um, it refers to praise rendered to God. For example, Revelation 4 11, with the 24 elders, they said, you are worthy to receive doxa. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. By the way, John also sees the miracles that Jesus did as revealing his glory. We see that in John 2 the, the, at the wedding of Cana. Okay, that's just so we understand what we're talking about with the term glory. Now let's really shift to talking specifically about the transfiguration. Something happens that is so, so significant. I believe at the Transfiguration we have the inauguration of the Messianic Age. This is because the Messianic Age is about the kingdom, the already and the not yet, the kingdom coming. And in the uh, Transfiguration, they see and to some degree experience the coming kingdom now. And uh, that's why he said only a week earlier, there's some standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. A close look at this episode gives us a number of insights regarding the mystery of Christ. Do you remember I taught you a word two weeks ago? I taught you two parallel words, Christophany and Theophany. And uh, it's, theophany is, is an appearance of God. And we said that when God appears, he always appears as Christ, most commonly called the angel of the Lord. I'm sure you remember that. But here we have a theophany. Um, we see him in full display for who he really is. So now I want to look at about eight or nine different things that probably... 
we could do more than that. But I want us, my great goal for all of us is not to read the scriptures two-dimensionally, but to understand that we've got to go deeper and deeper and deeper. I read a great quote by one of the church fathers, Origen, who said this, uh, this week I, I read it. He said that there's multiple, multiple meanings to what God in his foreknowledge put into the Old Testament. They, they have multiple meanings. He said, if you were a farmer and you planted a seed and you only expected a crop of another seed, that would be ridiculous. It would be foolish. Why do we approach the Bible the same way? Oh, I gotta, I gotta find out what the meaning is. When there's whole levels of meaning. And that's part of where I want to go with tonight as we look at some of these things. Um, I told you in the, in the, uh, in the Old Testament it's filled with theophanies or Christophanies where Christ shows up. But one of the things that hit me, the Mount of Transfiguration, by the way, historically, there's several thoughts of what it could be, uh, but Mount Tabor is, is traditionally thought to be that one. It could be Mount Horeb, um, but, but that's where it's a mountain. They go up a mountain. So why does that get my interest? Because when Jesus shows up with Abraham, remember Abraham and Isaac, it's on Mount Moriah. When, when God shows up with Moses and has this incredible encounter where the law is given, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, it's on Mount Sinai. And we know that Moses and Elijah are going to be key in this passage. We already saw that. Where does Elijah encounter the Lord? On Mount Horeb. He, it, so it's very significant to me that this whole thing begins on a mountain. And in Christ's ministry in the New Testament, mountains are really key. The Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Olives, which shows up more and more in the last week of his life. Gethsemane's on the Mount of Olives. Golgotha was called the Mount of Golgotha. Um, and where do we have the Great Commission happening in Galilee? On a mountain. He goes up on a mountain to meet with them in Matthew 28. So, mountains seem to me to be a significant setting for this. It's not just happenstance that he has this encounter on a mountain. I think mountains are pretty significant, actually. I, I feel like historically we just... Uh, we're drawn up. Think of, uh, I was thinking of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? So the second thing I want to point out is that the transfiguration is a prayer event. <sighs> Luke fills in that important detail that Jesus takes the three disciples with him when he goes to pray. Um, until now, all we have in the synoptic accounts is, and Jesus rose early and went off to pray. Right? We see that again and again and again. Um, so, so all we know is he goes by himself and he goes to pray. Now, the disciples get to see 
what and how Jesus prays. Because that's what he's doing. They're witnessing what happens when God the Son talks with God the Father. And we're reminded of, of how they fall to the ground in this encounter. And what did John do in, in uh, Revelation? When he sees Christ, who he really is, he hits the deck, right? I've shared that with you before, whether it's, whether it's uh, Daniel or, or um, Ezekiel, John. They hit, he hits the deck when he sees him. Now, by the way, you may not notice this, but the, this episode, the Transfiguration, is the only time pre or post crucifixion where Jesus' glory is revealed. Isn't that interesting? We have here in the evenings been praying the creeds a couple of times in the Nicene Creed. Last week we did. And and one of the, the wonderful lines early on in the Nicene Creed in talking about the incarnation of Christ we prayed that last week. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So let's talk a little bit about glory and light, the third main point I want to make. Scripture tells us clearly God is light, right? God is love, God is light. First John 1 John 1.5 tells us that. And we already know that Jesus is clearly revealed as God. And we're told here that his face was shining like the sun. That's verse 2. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the natural realm. All three of the synoptics use their own words to try to describe the indescribable. His, his glory, his light, was, was like something we've never seen. I almost get a kick out of Mark because he says, well, it was, it was whiter than, than any launderer, you know, whiter than white, whiter than tide, whiter than <laughs> whatever. Because they haven't got words for it. Um, what is this passage telling us? It is shouting the consistent testimony of the New Testament. Jesus is God. God is light. This dazzling light comes from within. It is the divine energy and purity of God that comes from the Son. What Jesus always was within now is made visible externally. So, here's something I've been thinking about a lot for several weeks. For a long time, I saw the transfiguration as... Woo! Suddenly, Jesus became bright and dazzling. And then it stopped. Well, I think that Jesus didn't change in front of them. I suspect that what happened was the veil was lifted from their eyes so they could see what Jesus really was, what he really looked like all the time. That's what I think happened. This mystery of Christ is so much more than theology and doctrine and figuring things out. 
It's, it's, it's entering into this ultimate reality. By the way, when they saw him dazzling, they weren't just seeing who he really is. They were, they were seeing into the destiny of all who, who would believe, which is pretty encouraging. Remember when Moses came down the mountain, and also when he came out from the tabernacle, his face shone. Remember he put a veil? But that, that light gradually faded. This is because the light that was on him was reflected light. It was a reflected light from Jesus who is the light. The glory of God comes to us and we are changed by it. But we're never the source of that light. We never get to say, I just really feeling, no. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18, I have for years, where Paul said, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. His light transforms us, but He is the light. So at the transformation, uh, we get to see... uh, We get to see his true state. If you think about that, if you turn that a little bit, he didn't change. That's who he always is. They just got to, of course that's who he is. Revelation 21, 23, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's glory, doxa, illuminates it, and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb, right? So, right near the end of the whole story, we have this never-ending light, but it's, he's the source. He's the light. And for all eternity, we will reflect that glory and that light. Jesus said that, by the way, earlier in Matthew 13, uh, 23, he said, Then the righteous shall shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. And I don't know how often I've read that metaphorically. You know, well, our purity and we're just going to shine. I think we shine. I think it's another reality on these verses. You know, whether you want to do it Luke 9, 28-34 or Matthew 17, 1-8. Don't just read them. Turn them into prayer. Turn them into prayer. Pray them back and ask the Lord, what do you want to show me? Because I think that he'll begin to show you things. You'll see things with the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your spirit. I think this is in part about calling us up to this greater supernatural reality. Um, So as I told you, chapter 16 ended with him saying they were going to go to Jerusalem, he would suffer, be killed, they had to be willing to lose their lives. But he takes them and lets them see who he really is on the mountain in order to plant in them a certainty, not only about who he is, that the glory and the light of God that await them, but that he knew that they would need this revelation, seems like too small of a word, 
this incredible encounter, he would need this, they would need this in the midst of what was about to happen, because the darkness that was going to come. Um, he was strengthening them with supernatural heavenly encounter. Now let's talk about, suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, there's a lot of levels of meaning here. And in fact, if you want to get into, like, church fathers, you can you could probably read 50 pages on this stuff. But um, I promise you we're not going to do that right now. However, I do want to make a few points. Moses, of course, every commentator points out, he represents the law. And Elijah was considered to be the greatest of the prophets. He represents the prophets. Um, so in one sense, them coming, Moses reminds us to look back at the faithfulness of God. Look how he's been faithful all the way through. And Elijah represents the future promise of restoration. There was uh, a great anticipation uh, in first century Palestine that, that Elijah was soon to come. And their understanding of the scriptures was that when Elijah comes, then Messiah is going to come. In fact, when this episode is done and they're walking down the hill, down the mountain, Jesus talks about this very issue. But for us, Moses represents the law and looking back at his faithfulness and Elijah, the future promise of restoration. But it is so clear in this episode that Jesus is greater than the law and he's greater than the prophets. As I told you in Luke's account, Moses and Elijah appeared in the reflected glory of Christ. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, which he was about to accomplish uh, in Jerusalem. The cross, they, they were talking about that very thing. And very shortly thereafter, he would go to the cross, right? He, the passion was soon about to begin. They understood, of course, that the cross was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, has got a three-volume set on Jesus of Nazareth, which I would recommend to anybody to get. It is brilliant. Uh, he is one of the great scholars on Christ. But he says that the cross, we in, all of Scripture must be interpreted through the cross. And I think that's what we're getting here to. Um, so, again, Luke says that that they spoke with Jesus about his departure. The word there is only used one time in all the New Testament. And you know what the proper translation of the word departure is? Exodus. Interesting. He spoke to them. They spoke to him of his exodus. They were talking about his soon coming journey to the cross, but in the context of God's great plan to bring ultimate freedom eternal life to his people. And I would say beyond that, the culmination of God's great purpose is the glory of God coming to earth, heaven and earth coming together. So the transfiguration shows us the continuity of God's story and his plan for his creation. Moses and Elijah are with Jesus, but they're not equals. He is their Lord. 
The transfiguration shouts to us the truth that we understand the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, only through relationship with Christ. He is the key to rightly interpreting the truth of the Bible. I'm going to say more about that in a couple minutes. So, Jesus suddenly, they see him for who he really is, and now Moses and Elijah show up, and what does Peter do? I'm sure we've all thought, what was he thinking? When he blurts out in true Peter style, that's why I like Peter so much, I can relate to him, that he says, we need to build three shelters, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I used to be very confused about this, but I want to unwrap it for you. All three Gospel writers very specifically place this event at the same time. Um, it's interesting because Matthew says six days, Mark says a week, Luke says eight days. So it, it could be from the time he spoke until it was over, and then the actual event was in the middle too, or it could be, you know, whatever. But it's the same time. And they're very, very specific. Why does that matter? Because this took place at the end of the culmination of the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. And for Israel, there were three dimensions to this feast. This is a major feast. There's three biggies. And this was one of the biggies, okay? So, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the relationship between the Creator and His creation. Secondly, it was a formal time of remembering God's faithful work in history with his people. And finally, the feast looked forward in hope to the coming of the Messiah. I go back to what I said to you before. I think that, that we, see, we see God opening the door on the beginning of the Messianic Age in the, in the Transfiguration. The Gospel writers are recognizing that something very important, the Feast of Tabernacles, is being fulfilled in the Transfiguration. Peter knew that the Feast is the celebration of the coming Kingdom of God. That's why he asked to build three shelters. It's interesting, uh, in John 1.14, which we've looked at so many times, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, some of you would know that actually the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that's what Peter understood when he said that. It was He saw there's a fulfillment going on right in front of me. There is, however, another more basic possibility for why he said that. Jesus tells him, I'm going to go. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. Peter steps up and says, no way, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. Famous, famous passage. But Peter didn't say it out of bravado. He said it out of his incredible love for Jesus. He had fallen so deeply in love with Jesus Christ. And even though he was rebuked, I don't think his worry went away. And so it's entirely possible 
that, that they're up on the mountain. When you go up on a mountain, there's something otherworldly about it, right? There's something like a retreat. They're in a safe place. This is incredible. Heaven's come to earth. Why don't we build something more permanent here so we can stay here at least for a while? I think it was perhaps also an expression of his love and care for Jesus. He didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. Okay. Now, while Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. We know, many of us, the the term Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. And it it would manifest, it would come, it came down on the mountain with Moses uh, at the giving of the law. It came down when he was giving him the Ten Commandments. And the fact that the glory cloud now comes down on Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the three disciples seems clearly to say to me that Jesus is now the new Torah. He's the new law. The glory cloud came down on the tabernacle. And later, with Solomon in the temple, clearly Jesus is the temple. He is the new temple. We talked about that several months ago when we looked at John. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, God the Father, is establishing, this is the shift from Moses the Law, from Elijah the Prophets, from the the temple, from the mountain, No, it is now the glory cloud is on Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, the Son of God. Wow. Is that different than the Holy Spirit, the glory cloud? The glory cloud, yeah, it it is the presence of God. It it is, yes. It's, 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 again, we go back to what glory is about, specific manifestation. Okay, so the glory cloud comes down. Peter's thinking, hmm, I think I wish I hadn't opened my mouth. And now we hear this. The Father says, in the midst of the glory cloud, this is my beloved Son. I take delight in Him. Listen. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Father only speaks twice. And both times he says the very same thing. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, or in whom I delight. This means that the most important thing that the Father wants them to know, and wants the church to know, is that Jesus is his only son and he has all authority. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, that listen to him. God wants the three disciples and the church to reverence, to value, to worship his son more than any person or any priority. Clearly this is the pinnacle of this of this uh, transfiguration event. The Father's declaration... This is my beloved son, and I take delight in him, was was prophesied. Jesus appears in the scriptures all the way through the Old Testament. And let me give you two examples. Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I've become your father. 
Isaiah 42.1, there's a whole group of chapters there about the servant, the servant son, the servant Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The center of the transfiguration is the Father's great declaration of who the Son is to him and who he should be to us. I think it's fascinating that the cloud comes down, the Father speaks, and he does not say, listen to me. He says, listen to him. Jesus is the Father's word. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, right? Jesus is the Father's word. If we want to hear the Father, then listen to the Son. His glory is that of the triune God. When we see His glory, we see the Father's and the Holy Spirit's. Inseparable. Three distinct persons, but inseparable. (coughs) There will not be three tabernacles built. God the Son is the eternal tabernacle. So we're back to what we talked about two weeks ago, Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus is the key to interpreting the Old Testament, to tying all of its diverse uh, threads together. I'm sure all of us have this experience as I, I read, you know, several chapters from the Old Testament each morning. And sometimes I, I just got to go, huh? But what about this and what about that? He is the key. So he didn't say, the Father didn't say, listen to me. He also didn't say to Peter, listen to them, the law and the prophets. He didn't say that. He said, listen to Jesus. Therefore, we are to read the Old Testament by interpreting it in light of Jesus' words, Jesus' deeds, Jesus' emphases. We we revere, we value the Old Testament. That's why I read it every day. Because Jesus did. But my deep conviction for many years is that I find Jesus in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament itself is not equal to Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, again and again, he says, you've heard, and he's quoting back to the law, but I say, he says it again and again. It must have just shocked them. The fathers listen to him reinforces this. The transfiguration confirms Christ's superiority to Moses, the law, and his superiority to Elijah, the prophets. We must not see the entire Bible as flat. And by the way, a lot of the church does, especially around the issue of inerrancy, they see everything as flat. Every part is equally inspired. But the Father says to listen to Christ above all others. Joshua, I just finished reading Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I'm just in the first first Samuel. I'm telling you, Joshua is not as authoritative as John's Gospel. It's not. 
Do I learn from it? Yes. Am I challenged by it? Yes. Esther, which by the way, is the only book in the Bible where God's name isn't mentioned. Did you know that? Another freebie. Esther is not as authoritative as Romans or Ephesians. Do they have value? Of course. But the Bible is not flat. Okay, that's to me one of the great implications of listen to him. We're on a home stretch. Let me just briefly say this about the transfiguration and, and what it shows us about the Trinity. Just like at Jesus' baptism, we see the presence of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. And remember, at his baptism, in bodily form, it says, as a dove, it says, the Holy Spirit descends. The Father speaks so they all may hear, and he speaks of the Son. I mean, even the fact that the Father speaks twice in the New Testament, and he doesn't say, listen to me. He doesn't say, let me tell you what I'm thinking. He doesn't say anything but point to Jesus. And what does Jesus do all the way through the Gospels? He points to the Father. And Jesus says to the religious people, listen, be careful, because you better not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There's this otherness in the Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity later in this series, but, but it's right there. Listen to Him. It's, it's so important. So, all of you folks, take some time in this passage. And I want you to read it, and then I want you to turn it into prayer, and then I want you to just be still and let the Lord come and see what He says to you. It's an ancient way of prayer and of reading the Scripture. And this passage is its imperative, I think. So let's wrap this up. true glory of, the, of uh, God the Son breaks through here. The complete word has come. The true and the final tabernacle now dwells among us. The power of God's kingdom has been made manifest in the transfigured Jesus. The age to come has broken in and nothing will ever be the same. That's why I say for the third time, I think this is the actual inauguration of the kingdom, the inauguration of the messianic age. The glory of God has been revealed. It's interesting also, in Luke's account, it says in uh, 9.32, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. And when they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. I was thinking about that this morning. And I just saying, Lord, how often do I get spiritually sleepy? How often do I get dull? Jesus challenged them about dullness uh, in, in Mark 4, in, in Matthew 13, in, in Mark 8. So it's like I don't have 
the corner on the dullness market. But this caused me to think, how often do I get spiritually sleepy? How often am I too dull to be unaware of your presence, Jesus? If I'm going to perceive, if we're going to perceive, if we're going to experience His presence, His glory, we need to have eyes to see. How do we get there? I think the key always seems to be hunger. And and I know preaching takes us back to this again and again, but it's because we can't get around it. To me, the two most obvious examples are um, Isaiah 55, 1, the invitation from the Lord, whoever is hungry, come. John 7, 37, he says in a loud voice, if there's anybody thirsty, let him come. I think it's, it's, a, it's a long journey. We, especially some of us who are charismatics, we tend to look for these high water experiences. And it's interesting, I'm saying it in the context of the transfiguration. But what I think this calls us into is a lifestyle. A life of pressing in. A life where we find the richness in the journey itself. And not just in kind of getting the, the, the revelation that breaks through. I think in the journey, my hunger slowly increases. In the journey, I find myself more thirsty for Him. And when I say that, I'm kind of coming up a hundred miles and looking down, because we all have days, we go up and down. But I think as I'm pursuing Him, as I'm, as I'm pursuing what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mystery, as I'm pursuing Him, I find bit by bit there's a, there's a growing, steady hunger and thirst in my spirit, which is all His grace. And so I begin to perceive His glory in some new ways. Yes, there's times where I'm really aware of His presence that usually surprises me. But, there, but I'm also finding His glory, perceiving His glory, sometimes in creation, and I've never been a creation kind of guy. But the last couple of years I'm finding, oh, sometimes in His activity. So, I think I'm going to stop there because I've given you an awful lot. And you may want to go back and listen to this again. Because it's a, it's a very rich vein we've tapped into. But I know that the Spirit of God, if, if we will be still, and we will not rush, and we'll come back to this as many times as He draws us back to this passage, there will be something that awakens in us, a new perception along with the new hunger, a new perception of who this glorious King is. Who is this King of glory? As the psalmist said. So let's pray. Jesus, how wonderful, how marvelous. 
are still singing today, Lord. You're wonderful. You're marvelous. And let my let my spirit always, always say that. Always feel that. Always lean into your glory. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you that it, it gives us a, a fresh stirring that there is so much more of you. And Lord, we do want to begin to perceive not just earthly things, but heavenly things. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Thank you so much for joining us each week. Uh, I do hope this has been an encouragement to you. If you haven't had a chance to do so already, do be sure to check by uh, impactnations.com slash India to learn how you can help bring relief to those Muslims who've been attacked in New Delhi. Uh, In the meantime, have a great week. Mm -hmm.